following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know how you know... That sounded kind of weird. You know how... I, I can't say this without saying you know first. And when I throw you know right after, it sounds strange, but... Maybe put it this way. How can you know that you have a really amazing house? Okay? I mean, I mean the place that you live is 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 just like it is it is amazing. All right? When people see it, they think, "Wow." I I'm going to tell you why. This is this is not the evidence that you have an amazing, really nice place to live. It's not this. Somebody sees it and says, "Hey, this is a nice place." Cuz they're going to say that no matter what. I mean, that's just all there is to it. You know, you don't, unless you are a very blunt person, you will not roll up to someone's place and says, wow, you live here? This is a dump, okay? You, you just, you're just not normally going to, the, now I'm not saying that there's nobody here who would ever do that. I'm just saying that's not, most people would not do that, okay? So if they say nice place, Sorry, that's not that's not the indication. Or they even this is a beautiful place, a beautiful house you got here. You know, I mean that's that's good, that's okay. Or or even this being thrown out there is is this your dream home? Like is this not even that? You know how you really know that you have an amazing place? Is somebody who sees it for the first time will say, "Wow, who built this? Who?" Who built this? And then when you tell them, maybe perhaps you were the builder. And like, you? You built this? And wow. I mean, and there's a reason for that. It's because of this. The honor, and if we're dealing with contractors here, sometimes the business, too, goes to not the house, not the home. It goes to the builder of the house. And this is not what we're looking at today, but this is just a little squirrel I'm just going to chase just for a moment, okay? This is why it is so frustrating for some of us, for all of us as believers, to hear people ooh and awe over the beauty of our world and give the creator of that world absolutely no credit whatsoever. I just can't understand that. Somebody who does not believe in God can look at something so beautiful and say, wow, that is amazing. And not give credit to the designer and creator of that world. Because typically when you have this amazing thing built, the credit goes to the builder. Okay? Now, just hold that thought just for a moment. We'll come full circle to that, okay? Um, so far as we've looked through Hebrews, we have seen our author say some things that... Jesus, this is kind of a general theme of the letter written to the Hebrews. It's this, Jesus is greater. And one of the first things we looked at is Jesus is greater than the angels. And after our author made that very clear, he gave a warning to the hearers of that letter and to us as well. He gave a warning and he said this, he said, pay close, we need to pay closer attention to the gospel because of the power and the place of the original speaker and fulfiller of that gospel. And that person was and is Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and the message of, of that gospel is this. Jesus Christ is fully God 
and he became fully human. He died, he was buried, and he arose. That's the gospel. Now, this letter, as we spoke about a number of weeks ago, was written originally to a group of Hebrew Christians. In other other words, those who grew up in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish religion, Judaism, okay? And they had become believers in Jesus Christ. We kind of have a name for those people today. It's Messianic Jews. It's those who are Jews. That is their ethnicity, but their religion. I hate using that word. Their faith is in Jesus, the fulfiller of their heritage. All right. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at the first six. We're going to look at the whole chapter today, okay? But I promise you, we're not going to focus on the whole chapter. We'd be here a long time, right? And we're going to break it down just a little bit. And and to get us started, we need to look to the beginning of chapter 3, the first six verses. And as we wrap things up last week, we said this. Our our author introduced a theme, and the theme was this. Jesus, Jesus was and is the great high priest, And he just kind of introduced that and left it. And he kind of does the same thing today. And he will go more in depth into what that means here in a while in our letter. All right? So, Hebrews chapter 3. You can see in my Bible, it's very close to the end. If you've got a hard copy, it's there. Get there and find it. All right? If you've got it on your phone, find it. You can find it very, very quickly. You're not sure where it's at in your Bible. Look at the table of contents. It will put you in the right place. It is so important to have our eyes together on the Word as... I read it, all right? This is what it says. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. The author says, Therefore, holy brethren, when you see that word brethren, it's the reason it doesn't say brothers, because it's talking about brothers and sisters, all right? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. And we'll just stop right there for a moment, okay? Whose house we are. When I think of a, a, a building project and when it comes to homes, my, my, my brother and sister-in-law are kind of beginning this process now. Mike, Mike and, and Darby um, of, of building, building a home. This process is going to take a while because they're going to build a shop, live in it, and then they're going to build a home once they sell their other home. But Mike has, has taken upon the role of that, of being the general contractor. Okay, And basically what that means is he's not going to do all of the work. Most general contractors do not. But they're the ones who are completely and totally in charge. They make the decisions. They tell the subcontractors what to do and how to do it. Decisions need to be made. Go through them. They are in charge. The only one in charge over the general contractor (laughs) is the homeowner. Okay, And it's kind of interesting Um, I kind of like to listen to to Dave Ramsey 
uh, the, the financial guru, and he said one of his really good friends there in, in Tennessee, I think he lives in, in Nashville, I think, um, is a contractor, and he said one of the worst things about being a contractor is the homeowners, because they change their mind so much. And I don't want that wall there. Sorry, you need to move it. Okay. Anyway, I won't go into the details of that, all right? Generally, though, it is the general contractor who is in charge. When I look at these first six verses of chapter 3, one word jumps off the page right into my face, and it's this, house. The house. The house that was built. What is our author getting at with this? And in talking about this house, he makes a comparison contrast a little bit, more of a comparison between two people. And those people are Jesus, the, the main focus of this entire letter, and Moses. And the thing about Jesus and Moses is they had something very rare in common. They had a unique combination of fulfilling two roles simultaneously. Look at verse 1. And there's two roles included, two titles included there that represent roles. The first one is this. The New American Standard is apostle. And the second one is high priest. So let's define those for a moment. Apostle. An apostle is this, God's messenger to his people. Okay, you got that? And high priest is this. The high priest fulfills a number of roles, but the most important role of the high priest is to stand between God and his people, and more specifically in the Jewish faith, is offering atoning sacrifice. It was the role of the high priest who would go on a yearly basis into the holy place and offer the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. So we're talking about a very, very important role here. And there are very few people in Scripture who fulfill both of those roles simultaneously. One of them is Jesus. And another was Moses. And I know what you're thinking. Those of you who are students of the Old Testament and know the history of the people of Israel would say, wait, 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 wait a second though, Jim. Moses was not the priest. Don't you remember? It was his brother Aaron who was the high priest. But here's the deal. Aaron royally messed up a few times, okay? And, and it was not Aaron, but it was Moses who on more than one occasion stood in the gap between God and his people because God got pretty angry with Israel a couple times. And it was Moses who stood between the two of them and became Israel, the nation of Israel's advocate. Matter of fact, to, to bring that home to us, we're going to turn to one other passage of Scripture. And this one's very close to the beginning of your Bible, Numbers. All right? Numbers, and I didn't mark it, so we can both turn there together. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, beginning with verse 5. And I cannot turn the one single page. There we go. Let me set this up just a little bit. Moses not only had a brother who was named Aaron, he also had a sister. She was an older sister. Anybody here got an older sister? I do too. I'm not going to say any more about that. Okay. We'll just leave that right there. Just leave that right there. All right, Uh, his older sister's name was Miriam, and there came a point in time where Miriam and Aaron got their little heads together and were like, we just don't like Moses, how he's running this thing. You know what, Aaron, I think you could do a better job this, and Aaron, well, you know what, sis, I think you could do a better job this, Moses. Well, God who hears all things heard the grumbling taking place between Miriam 
and Aaron. Because they're not brave enough to do it to his face, Moses' face. They're doing it behind his back. And look what happens here. Beginning Numbers chapter 12, verse 5. God shows up in a pillar of cloud and fire, and he speaks to Miriam and Aaron. And this is what he says. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, the tabernacle. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. There's that house word again. With him I speak mouth to mouth, face to face, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? (laughs) And boy, I'll tell you what, it gets a little tough for for Aaron and Miriam for a while after that, Miriam specifically. And I'll let you read through that sometime on your own. Quite a story there. If you have a bossy older sister, which I don't, I don't. My sister, never been bossy. But if you had a bossy older sister, you might like kind of what happens next. Anyway, okay, we'll just leave that there, all right? So, all this being said, Moses was the one who would stand in the gap between God and the people of Israel. And the, now we're here speaking, the author writing to Hebrew Christians many, many years later, and this original audience would never overlook the place of Moses in history. There are very few events in history who would, that would rival the exodus of Israel from Egypt. God, through Moses, bringing the most powerful nation in the world to its knees and taking the slaves of the past 400 plus years of that nation and bringing them forth. Just leveling. God leveled Egypt. And Moses was right in the middle of all of that. And our author looks to this, verse 3 and 4, he says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. That, that, that is kind of interesting to me. Um, this letter is about Jesus. And what this letter is saying, did you catch that in verse 4? For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is not only the builder of the world, but he is also the shaper of history. He is in charge. He is in control. Now jump into verse 5 and 6 again. Now Moses was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. This house is who we are. Moses was a faithful servant of the house. Moses would never have said in that time that he was the builder of Israel. That he was the shaper of history. It was God at work there. Now Moses was a faithful servant. Moses was willing to go back to Egypt. He didn't want to, but he did it. Okay? 
And he was right in the middle of that. But he served as a servant. Jesus is the owner and builder of the house. He's not just a servant in that house. He owns it and he built it. So other words, here we go, right back with our theme again. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses, very important figure in history. Jesus is great. So what does that mean? What does that mean for the observant student of history? Okay, now I'm going to ask for a little bit of participation. I normally do not do this, so don't let it shock you, okay? And, and so we're going to see if we got some brave people here, right? And I'm going to give you an answer. There are, I'll give you, give you a hint. There are no wrong answers in what I'm going to ask. I'm just looking for a specific answer that might be different or better. Okay, so here's the question. First of all, okay, I'm going to do it. haven't done it in weeks. I'm going to do it, all right? How many people do we have in this room who are a fan of history? You're a student of history. Do we have some? Okay, raise the hands high. We have, okay, like, I'm kind of, yeah, I see this. Kind of, kind of. It means I like history, but I don't want to take any tests over it, okay? All right? Okay, very good. So we got a few. We got a few. Okay, so that means that we should have some answers to this next question. All right, here's the question. Why study history? What is the point of studying history? Oh, my goodness. Why did you have to give the right answer right off the bat, Tolly? We're supposed to bowl it around a little bit, you know, and I'm supposed to say, good answer, but not quite what I was looking for. And you just stole that opportunity from me, okay, Tolly? No, just kidding. Uh, Okay, all right, all right. I should have told you beforehand you can't participate, okay? All right, Tolly's exactly right. The number one reason for studying history is this, to not repeat the mistakes that people did in the past. There are a lot of good reasons for looking at history, but that is the number one reason. We don't repeat the mistakes of those who came before us. Let's continue, and we're going to look at the rest of this chapter. All right, beginning with verse 6. We'll start, we'll start at verse 5, because we're just right in the middle of stuff. Would you follow along with me, please? Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they will always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers in Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said... Today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Our author here is using a part of history for a contemporary lesson. And remember, he's speaking to Hebrew Christians. He's speaking to people who knew the message of the Exodus. They knew what happened after God brought his people Israel and brought them through the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness. That was not the place they were supposed to be. Their goal was to get to Canaan, the promised land. And the the author is writing to a group of people who knew all of this very, very well. And interestingly enough, the author is not the only one who uses this example of history in this, this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul speaks very, very similar words. And looking back on the nation of Israel after they left Egypt and before they came to the promised land. You see, an entire generation missed out on the promised land. God told them, you will not enter my rest. We get this from, it's also repeated in the Old Testament, from the 95th Psalm, speaking about, the first half of that Psalm is about praising and giving glory to God. The second half of that Psalm is do not fall into the trap that the nation of Israel, your forefathers fell into. That's what the author of the psalm says, David. Many of us have probably sat back in wonder when pondering the people rescued out of Egypt. Hopefully you've read through Exodus of the Old Testament and you know that story well. Some of you probably watched movies or read books about it. There's a lot out there. I mean, goodness gracious, Charlton Heston. Are you telling me? Ten Commandments. And and you think about the incredible things that those people saw. And I don't know about you, but my mind goes to when they're in the wilderness and they're grumbling and they're complaining and they would even come to the point that says, we should have just stayed in Egypt. It was so good making those bricks without straw. That was good stuff. You know, half starving to death. I loved it. I just loved it with those whips being laid across my back. That was, that was the good life. That's the life we tell about our kids. Well, you should have been around in the good old days. And you're like, how can these people be complaining and grumbling when they saw the incredible wonders? How in the world can they be complaining? And every single morning they walked out and they picked bread from the ground to eat called manna. And they complained about that. So quail. My mom would have loved it. My mom loves eating quail. Best thing ever. That's what she says. Now, I don't know if mashed potatoes and gravy grew on the ground with the quail, you know. But I'm sure you could do something with that manna that tastes like mashed potatoes and gravy, all right? So they've got all of that going for them. They're thirsty. God provides through Moses water. Every time. And they were supposed to go to the promised land. That's where God was leading them. 
They saw so much. And, and, and the 95th Psalm is written most specifically about one particular part of that story. It is, it is a humbling, ugly part of the history of Israel where they find themselves, after traveling so far, sitting on the edge of the promised land, sitting on the edge of Canaan. There's a reason why when we preach and teach through that moment, the history of Israel, we focus so much on Joshua and Caleb. You remember? Remember those 12 spies? Ten were bad and two were good. Did you ever sing that in BBS when you were a little kid? 12 spies sent into, into the promised land to scout it out, to spy it out. Ten of them came back and said, it's a great place, but... We can't do anything with it. Those people are powerful. And Joshua and Caleb came back and says, we have God with us. We can do this. But who did Israel listen to? The ten or the two? The ten. Our author summarizes Israel's problem of hard-heartedness in this way. Um, Again, verses 18 and 19, he says this, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, the promised land? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Their disobedience, two words jump out of those two verses to me, disobedience. And what was that disobedience? The disobedience was this, unbelief. You know what that unbelief was? It was this, it was grasshopper syndrome, okay? If you remember that account, you know what I'm talking about. When, when those 10 spies come back and they tell Israel, Man, you should have seen the people over there. They're giants. We're like grasshoppers, guys. Don't you understand? We're like grasshoppers, and they're like the people who stomp on grasshoppers, okay? We can't do it. How can they forget where God had just led them from? The most powerful nation in the world brought to its knees by God. And that same God said, take the promised land. I'm with you. Grasshopper syndrome. They wouldn't do it. I read this this week. Listen, this is, this is not for me. This is, this is a quote. This is about this. It says, this is, the moral must have been plain enough for the recipients of this letter. For they too had experienced the redeeming power of God. They too had the promise of a homeland of the faithful to look forward to. But one thing could prevent them from realizing that promise, just as it prevented the mass of the Israelites who left Egypt from entering the promised land. That one thing was unbelief. The vast majority the vast majority of the nation of Israel stood on the doorstep of the promised land and looked God in the face, the God who had led them out of Egypt, who had destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. They looked that same God in the face and they said, we don't trust you. You know what is at the core of unbelief? Because, I mean, he says here, our author says, their problem was un. 
Belief. You know what's the core of unbelief? It is this, a lack of trust. Guys, it is the same way in any and every relationship. And see, that is what we are called to when we come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're called into an incredibly amazing relationship. And I can tell you right now, trust is the fuel of the engine relationship. This relationship engine that is running, what fuels that is trust. Now do not misunderstand me, okay? We don't earn salvation by our faithfulness to God, our trust in God. Faithfulness is the evidence of our salvation. Every place in life, in every place that you find yourself, that I find myself in life, God's message is the same. And his message for you and me all through life is this. He looks to us and he says, trust me. Now remember, our author is writing to a group of people, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, that it would be all too easy to fall back onto their history, onto their past. Because within the nation, the empire of Rome at this time, it had become illegal to be a Christian, but it was perfectly legal, legal, perfectly legal to follow the ways of Judaism. I don't want to say become a Jew because Jew is an ethnicity. But often it represents a religion behind it. And those people could step back into their old way of life and be perfectly fine. And our author apparently was worried about that for his audience. And he says to them, he says, don't fall back on religion. It cannot save you. God says, do not fall back on religion. It cannot save you. And what God might be saying to us, maybe a little bit differently, is this. Don't fall back on trusting in your own power. You see, that is the number one thing that keeps people from coming to God. They think they got it under control. And there's no way that they're going to yield that control to someone else. And always in the back of our minds, especially if you became a follower of Jesus Christ later in life, is that still small voice whispering, and it's not a good voice. You can handle this. You don't need him. And to that, God says, don't fall back on trusting on your own power. It got you nowhere. It can get you nowhere. He says, trust 